Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And you know what? I'm only as hip as my guest, people, but I am getting hipper. I've, I've got this new single-serve coffee combo from Cafe Valet. Their brewers are very inexpensive. It's as little as $25 for a brewer. And you get 10 sample packs, which is a great deal because the coffee's really good. I drink the decaf. That's what I get through them. But it's just $20 when you use the discount code COOPER. Now, compared to other single-serve coffee systems, you can save up to 100 bucks. And with Cafe Valet, I get a great-tasting cup of coffee brewed in just minutes, just the way I like it every time so how's that for hip people so go to cafevalet.com and use the code cooper and save even more that's cafevalet.com and the coupon code is cooper to get this combo for just 20 bucks and i'm telling you it's good coffee so anyway go check it out and uh, we have a great show today uh this gentleman i feel like i know him we were just talking he's so many uh, when he you know he's a creator of everybody else loves raymond but like a bunch of his writers were on the show and, and so when he came in i'm like I, I feel like i know the guy and my guest is phil rosenthal how you know phil Hello, I want some of that coffee. You made it sound very good. It's good. You know, I, I have a heart condition. I was diagnosed a few years ago. Yeah. So I switched to decaf. And and I know you're a foodie because you have the Netflix show. And I I enjoy decaf. I'm one of those people, people just go, why are you drinking decaf? It's, you know, I'm like, I like how coffee tastes. Okay. Do you? Of course. I mean, are you a big coffee guy? I'm an addict. Are you? How many cups do you drink a day? Uh. I drink about two or three, but I spoke to a doctor because it recently came out that coffee is actually good for you. So when that came out and, and you know, the wisdom had been, you got to get off caffeine. So I asked the doctor, how many cups a day are okay? And he goes, you know, we've studied this and we found, he says, you're not going to believe it. The ideal amount of coffee for a person is six cups a day. That's amazing. See, my mom used to drink a lot of coffee. Six cups. I said, well, I'd like to sleep at night. He said, do it before three. That's, see, that's funny because it's just so funny how things change. Like me yes. having a, a regular heartbeat. So I worry. Right. I could probably do caffeine, but I'm not going to take the chance. Of I don't, course. Anyway. But it's just so funny. It's like how years ago, it's like every, everyone had coffee. I mean, you know, we grew up back east. You know, it's like we went to the diners. You had yeah. coffee. Your parents would keep getting the cup filled yes and everyone was like coffee coffee and then all of a sudden it's bad for you and now everyone's like oh my god it's great for and you. now it's great for you yeah so it's crazy and by the way decaf is is okay it good decaf reminds you of coffee right that's that's <laughs> true i just it's funny because i have a little french press and i yes. make it in the morning and it's like it's good so now now you're a new york guy i am now you grew up in queens i i was born in queens i grew up in the bronx a little bit in uh, the, the nice park called riverdale and then we moved to Rockland County. So that's really where I grew up. But in and around New York my whole life, I went to Hofstra University and then moved into Manhattan for the 80s. Okay. See, that must have been great. So now now I read you were always involved in theater. I mean, as a kid, were you, always. When, when did you, what did you watch like as a kid? Like, you know, we think about TV. You know, that's easy. We're around the same age. It's probably all in the family or those shows. Or what course, were you watching? Of course. But for me, it started really with uh, the Jackie Gleason show and the Honeymooners. I was just, that was that guy made me laugh him and art carney were my gods and i remember my first memories of any kind of performing was around the the dining room table when my parents had their friends over and then i found that i could stay up late while they were having coffee cake and cigarettes right <laughs> uh and if i imitated the shows and as a little kid three four years old i i actually have that memory of being the center of attention by doing that and that felt good and then you know that's talk about being addicted that becomes the drug and you search for that the the rest of your life and in school you know you start doing that in class and you get thrown out of class or you get in trouble or you go to the principal's office so the only outlet for an idiot like me was to be in the school plays and so i was in the school plays starting in junior high when they had such a thing you know i remember being in the third grade play being an elf it's it's amazing because I think about like my high school had a very good theater department. Yeah. And but back then, I mean, because I'm 52, uh -huh. and back then there there wasn't a lot of you know a lot of people doing it. it. I don't know why. Like in our school, and now there's probably tons of kids doing it. But the like the people who were doing theater back yeah. in the in you know in that time yeah. were sort of groundbreaking because no one everyone else was like oh we'll play sports so we'll do this and I went to right. a big school and right and it's like I mean, it's where was that in Cherry Hill, New Jersey? Uh -huh. And so it was a matter of you know. Our theater department was great, but not many people did it. For me, it was uh, the way that I could be social without getting picked on. Okay. So I was a skinny little nothing of a child, and I got picked on. And and when you move in the middle of fourth grade, 
from the city up to suburbia, I mean, you get you get all kinds of crazy hate that you can't understand, like anti-Semitism even, right. that I was exposed to for the first time. And as, as a little kid, I didn't get it. And I just know that I didn't like it. And I wasn't good at sports, which seemed to be the only thing that was valued. And for me, I was trying to explain to these boys who were pushing me that that being in the school play was as valid a form of self-expression as the football team. And they didn't care. They just wanted to, you know, here's someone we can hit. Yeah, it's that's funny. So now, now were you starting to write then, about then too, or were you just concentrating on the acting? I, I, think, I think I just wanted to be funny. So I wasn't like even a serious actor. I just wanted to be Art Carney or Jackie Gleason. I just wanted to be funny like them. And so that that was the only outlet. Writing comes naturally, I believe, or not. But I do think that we're all writers in a way. I'm talking to you now. I'm writing what I'm saying. Right. Right? Improvising. Well, see, I always say that too because people say, do you write out your interview? And I yeah. say, no, I just do my research and yeah. I look to what they say and then I guide off your truth. It's improvising. I guide off what you're saying to write and we go hand in hand. And that's, I, I agree with that. We are all natural writers because what we're doing right now is we're writing a script. Exactly. We just don't realize. Exactly. But when you act, let's say, and there's no internal, meaning there's no nothing written before your line. If you say, I went to, I'm going to the store, you know, the, the writer will add the internal in parentheses before that, angrily. Right. Sadly, I'm going to the store. If there is, if it's not there, or even if it is there, and you choose to do it another way, you know what? You're writing. Exactly, that's true. So and you're writing the most important part of the script, right? Which is the feeling and motivation. Why are we saying this? Right. That's the most important thing. It's true. It's true. So, my advice to actors, my advice to writers, my advice to directors is they're all connected. They're all branches off the same tree. And if you're a writer, take an acting class. If I, you're an actor, take a directing class. They're all connected. And if you want to succeed in the business, I think it behooves you to be as good at all these things. If I was any good at all as a showrunner, it was because I was trained in these three disciplines. So I could solve a problem on stage by seeing the difference between a writing problem, acting problem, directing problem. Right? And now that took a while because I yeah. mean, it's something I think also a lot of times something that is instinctual too. I think that in this business, I think people don't give instinct enough. I, I think it goes yeah. to, you know, I, I know, I mean, you know, when something's going wrong and you have yes. the, the instinct to jump on that and yes. change it. A lot of people don't, they go, well, I don't know. But when you have instinct to jump on the problem, yeah. the problem gets solved. And usually it's not even a problem. You're damn right. Because uh, I worked on many shows where writers couldn't communicate what they wanted to say to the actors so they didn't have the tools to say it they didn't have the training to say it they didn't have the background to say it and so we go back to the room and try to solve it just through writing and you're there till three in the morning and that stinks right especially and yeah. nothing ever got funnier at three in the morning you just think it did <laughs> yeah yeah because your head you're getting missing sleep you're getting woozy. yeah you're eating candy and you're just uh, soda and you're just crazy so now what was your major in hofstra Did drama you, oh theater. so you went to drama so yeah you went, so you you were you were full on board you were like i'm yeah. gonna act i'm gonna act so you get out of hofstra you know why because i thought uh, it's gonna stink anyway when i graduate i had this knowledge <laughs> like i knew that it would it was gonna be a tough road no matter what so i may as well be happy right so so you get out of hofstra and you move to manhattan yeah and now you start acting no, no, I don't start acting. What I do start do? I start selling farm and implement cleaner on a telephone in a boiler room on Park Avenue South. Now, how'd you get into that job? I read it in the tr in the <laughs> in the newspaper in the classifieds because I needed a job because I wanted to eat. So you're doing that, you're selling, and now are you going to acting class too? Or are you trying to pursue the acting? Yes, yes. Okay. And you know what the best class I took was? None of these. I, I mean, a lot of acting classes. You go to acting class and you're sitting there while some. Somebody gets up and puts a clothesline across the stage, and then she she clips all these these uh, bits of clothing uh, to the clothing line. Then she sets up an ironing board and plugs in the iron and waits for it to get hot. And you're sitting there watching this, and then you know she changes her costume and she got, and she's all ready to do the scene, and she starts, and one or two lines into the scene, she has a nervous breakdown on stage, for real. Because she doesn't know what she's doing with her life, and her father didn't want her to be an actress, and the rest of class is her therapy. And I'm sitting there going, I'm paying for this. Right. 
And I'm not even going on that week, right? I'm not getting to even do something myself that week because she's eaten up all the time and you're paying for that. The best class I ever took, and I recommend this to people, was improvisation. For me, it was the groundlings. That is the best training for all of this stuff because it teaches you to, first of all, you're going to be on more than you're not. Right. You're on, if you're if you're in acting class, you're on 10% of the time. In the groundlings or improv class, 90% of the time you're out there. You're doing it. And you're thinking fast and you're having to make hard choices and commit in a big way and you're being positive. You know the number one saying in uh, improv, the most important rule is yes and. Meaning, whatever information you give me, I'm going to accept it be positive about it, and add to it. Yes, and. This is a philosophy of life right? that you can take with you. It helps you in every conversation you'll ever have, right? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, it is true, because you, you always want to keep things going, too. I mean, yeah. that's one thing about conversation is, well, my mom had always raised me to always ask. You don't look stupid. Like, if someone says a word, I don't know, I will yes. say... What does that mean? What does that mean? Because yeah. if I don't, if I'm like... Hey, yeah, yeah, well, right. And then all of a sudden they say, and you use it in the wrong context. People right. are like, this guy's a dick. What, what's, what's, what's he talking about? <laughs> then, <laughs> but I've always learned for conversation, and you, and Don't it's be true. Ashamed of asking. Yeah, you never feel dumb because I take it if someone asks me what a word means, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I don't look in a bad way. I'm like, well, good. At least I'm. They're listening to what I'm saying. Yes. Because they just said, well, what does that mean? And that's right. that's important because you always have to ask questions. Question and be positive. Be positive. This is just. A rule of life, right? Oh yeah. So now I want to know. So you're in. I want to get back because you've had such a, a career where it, you know you started out as an actor. Now yep. when did you start branching into writing? And, okay. And, and what happened? So with some some friends of mine from college, after about six years of really struggling in New York, of not being able to get an agent, hardly getting any auditions. You know, if you don't have an agent, you don't have an audition. So you go on these cattle calls from that you read about in backstage the newspaper, right? You go there with a thousand other guys going for no lines in a, in a movie or a commercial. Some friends of mine and I wrote a show for ourselves to be in, and that became popular. So was it a, a live show? or It was. Okay. Now, what was, it, what was the premise? The premise was a wedding where the actors were the bride and groom and the priest and the father of the bride and the father of the groom, and the audience were the guests coming to the wedding. It was called Tony and Tina's Wedding. So you wrote that? I co-wrote it with my friends from college. Because I know uh, my friend Joe Dallow, who yeah. I did comedy years ago, did that in Philadelphia. It was a big hit in Philadelphia. I was ran way after ever in Philly. So you did that. And yeah. now, now what, you just said, I want to be proactive and make things happen. Is that why you sat down and did this with your friends? My friends uh, came up with the idea. And I think they tried it on a weekend or two. And then they, they asked me if I would like to be part of it. And they wanted to make a more formal production. So I sat down and wrote the ceremony with them because I was going to play the priest. Okay. And then we did that, and that became one of the biggest off-Broadway hits in history. At the same time, my friend Alan Kirschenbaum uh, came to me with an idea for a screenplay. Now, I'd never written anything, really. I wrote, I wrote scenes for myself to do in acting class that you sometimes had to do, right? But I, I didn't consider myself a writer at all. But when Alan came over, he said, you're funny. Let's write a thing. I said, I don't know anything about it. He said, I'll teach you. Here's my word processor. Okay. And I'll tell you the structure. <laughs> it's very easy to learn. But you can't teach funny. So we sat down. We wrote a screenplay. And we sold the screenplay. Now, what was the screenplay called? It was called Shulman. It was about a suburban detective in the town we grew up in, Rockland County. We used a real name of a real guy, Millard Shulman. We liked that name. And we just made him a suburban detective. We had Alan Arkin in mind to play it. And we sold it to HBO. Now, in 1987, I had maybe $150, $200 in the bank, okay? That screenplay sold for $70,000. And I went out of my mind. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't. I, I thought, I'm now a thousandaire. Right. I've gone from <laughs> eating tuna fish for dinner to eating whatever I want. Right. And this stuck with me. You don't forget that. Now, nobody made that movie. I didn't realize it. At the time that this happened, more often than right. not, <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm, uh, here I am now. Yeah. <laughs> we sold a thing and now, now I'm set for life. No, they're not making the movie, especially with Alan Arkin. He doesn't open a movie. 
right? So I'm learning all these hard lessons about Hollywood right away. Uh, moved out here to pursue acting, not thinking about the writing at all. I just thought, well, here's money. That that thing's not going to happen. So I'm, uh, I really don't know much about writing still, even though I wrote these two things. I'm going to keep pursuing acting. So I moved out here because an agent said, if you move to Hollywood, you will never stop working as an actor. He saw me in the in the play. So I packed a bag. I moved out to Hollywood. I never started working as an actor. <laughs> so just you didn't get an agent, you get booked, or what happened? Nothing. So the, you... the, the, the agent lied. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, yeah, an agent lied. No. Yeah. And he he said, uh, when I got here, he goes, oh, I'm going to have my, my uh, associate. She'll represent you. I said, oh, but you saw me in the play, right? Yeah. She didn't see me in the play. No, but I'll tell her about you. Okay, right away it smells bad. Right away it smells like the associate. If you're the associate, your boss is giving you right. a guy that you've never heard of or seen before. Good luck to you. So that was it. And uh, she she never, I don't think she ever met me. She never sent me out. She never, it was nothing. So another friend of mine, Oliver Goldstick, whose plays I had been in at Columbia Grad School, he was out here for a year already. He was trying to get into sitcoms. He asked me if I'd like to write a sitcom spec with him. I write a sitcom spec with him. What is it based on? Where do we get the idea? Well, one of my odd jobs in New York when I wasn't acting was I was a guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I fell asleep on a 300-year-old bed at 4 in the morning. <laughs> and I was fired. At least you got fired in style. At least it was a 300-year-old bed. Yeah. There's was a little it, plaque there now. It says Phil Rosenthal. Yeah. <laughs> was it comfortable? It, it was fantastic. <laughs> it was it was great. It's a little. It's a. If you go there, you can go to the third floor of the American Wing. I think the room is still there. It's called the Hart Room. H A R T, and it's a, a kind of colonial, you know, Western setup. It was it wasn't like Queen Victoria's right. bed or anything. <laughs> it was a bed. It didn't have the velvet rope or anything that I had to climb over. In my movie, in my head, it would be you know the, one of these royal. <laughs> beds with the with the <laughs> whole thing you know like the, in versailles a thousand pillows yes you know and, and i'm in the middle the <laughs> little guard is in the middle of sleeping but i i i it was i was on the graveyard shift you know who works the graveyard shift don't you in any job people who can't get along with regular people during the day okay <laughs> or or stupid actors who can't you know get any other job so i was doing that for my 180 a week and i was sick i had a cold and i was in a play during the day, and, and then I would get just have enough time to get to work, you know, from rehearsal to the. So it was so stupid, and I was on cold medication. I was out of my mind. Right. And at four in the morning, <laughs> uh, I just I'd finished my route early, and I had like twenty minutes, and I just remember walking over to the bed, and then at five or five thirty a.m., the entire museum security staff is looking for the guard who didn't return to the post. Where's the guard? Is the guard dead? Is there a robbery in progress? Is the guard committing the robbery? Because that's usually who did it. Right. Uh, so they were all looking for me, and my supervisor found me. And she shook me awake. And I remember thinking, how did she get in my room? <laughs> and I was fired, as I should be. And uh, years later, um, I don't know what to write. So my friend Oliver Goldstick and I, uh, writing a spec script for a show called Roseanne. Okay. Right? And I have this idea. What if John Goodman's character, they need extra money, and he takes a job as a guard at night at the local art museum, and he falls asleep on a 300-year-old bed. So we start sending this around, and people are like, what an imagination. Right? Where did you think of this idea? <laughs> so I'm here to tell you people, write what you know. You you have a life where maybe you've had something like that happen to you, something really stupid that you've done. Take your horrible situation and make something good out of it. So you wrote that. I wrote that, got an agent right away. And you got an agent. Yeah. So now how does your process work? Because I know you ended up writing for Coach. That, well, did, before that, how did everything four years happen? before that, this was 1989, we got on a show. Now, what you can learn on your first show, you can learn on any show. Meaning, how a sitcom works, or how the TV business works, right? So we didn't care what show we got, as long as we got on a show. I pref This is all preface to say why I took a job on the Robert Mitchum sitcom. Okay. <laughs> that was our first job. 
I don't even I love TV. I didn't even know he had a sitcom. You didn't hear of this? It lasted seven episodes. Why didn't you? Why didn't you watch religiously? I uh, you know who was one of the uh, girls on the show? We discovered a girl named uh, Juliet Lewis. Okay. Yeah. She went from our show, from the seven-episode bomb that this show was, she went into Cape Fear with Martin Scorsese. It's crazy. Yeah. So so you do that for seven, and then it gets canceled. That's right, as now, it should be. But you, you, you learn, you use that as a learning experience, though, right? You have to. How could you not? You're seeing, it, it still is a show. It still is a sitcom where you write scripts, you have a table reading, you rehearse, it goes up. Now, as it's going, unless you're stupid, you're knowing that this isn't working. So you're learning from that too, right? What would you do different? Well, I think if I had Robert Mitchum in a sitcom, I'd play to his strengths, which is a tough guy. The premise of this show was, it was called The Family for Joe, was uh, he was a homeless man who uh, some foster children came up to him in his refrigerator box in the park and said, would you pretend to be our grandpa? And in exchange for which, you'll have a roof over your head. Right? So he takes that gig. Now, this was a TV movie first. It was called a, uh, the genre of this TV movie was Warmedy. Okay. <laughs> you get it? Yeah. It's a warm comedy as a Warmedy. Warmedy. Meaning, it's not so funny. Right. <laughs> and yet, it has a, it's not so serious. So it's just a lukewarm bath of poo. <laughs> really. And there's a lot of that stuff going around. Anyway, this thing became the highest testing anything in NBC history, this TV movie. Higher than Cheers, higher than the Cosby Show in the 80s. They couldn't not make it a backdoor pilot for a sitcom. And so they did. And so this thing is born. Now, I held on to the belief, knowing Robert Mitchum from these great movies, like Night of the Hunter and Out of the Past and these great noirs, and he's he's fantastic I was excited to actually get to meet him. The Some of the senior writers on the show, the how's this for an introduction to Hollywood, they didn't even know who he was. It's crazy. I thought it was crazy. I had him over my house to, to, to watch, or my apartment, to watch uh, Night of the Hunter. And they laughed at it. I'm like, oh no. I was starting to see. I was in a world of <laughs> shit. What's happening? And so I, 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 I still held out hope that Robert Mitchum, if he was allowed to be a gruff character like he is and hates kids and hates little dogs, that this could be funny in, in the way that I remember Father Knows Best, Uncle Charlie. Yeah. He was gruff and everything. He hated that kids were annoying to him and everything. I thought, well, that could be Robert Mitchum in a way. Or Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace. Exactly. Then this room, there's comedy potential. The very first episode, the very first moment, there's a blank stage. Typical Brady Bunch-looking house. You hear ding-dong. You hear, I'll get it. It's Robert Mitchum. He enters wearing an apron. Okay? And he he stops at the kitchen table to adjust the flowers before getting the door. And I'm like, oh, we're dead. We're dead right away. We're dead. Because you castrated him immediately. Why did they do this? The note was, make him likable. End of everything. Yep. That note. That one note, make him likable. When I got the note on Raymond, I'm not sure these characters are likable. I said, let me ask you something. Who in your family is likable? <laughs> so, that's true, though. So now you, you, you leave that, but you're, you're still I do in leave that. You're in I good did, spirits. I didn't have a choice. It was over. So then where do you go? We go to a show called Baby Talk. Okay. Baby Talk, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Look Who's Talking yeah. with the little babies. Uh, this was the TV version of this. Now, we <laughs> we didn't want this job either, but we took it because we didn't have anything else. And when you're starting out, you got to take what you get. Baby talk, we, we kind of liked the idea of Look Who's Talking. It was cute at the time. The way they did Look Who's Talking was they filmed hours and hours and hours of babies, right? And then comedy writers would come in and look at this footage and it would look like a baby was having an expression on his face that you could write to. Like, right? Right. Boy, I'd like to throw this crap that I have to eat at this guy's head, right? Bruce Willis would then come in after writing this and, and voice the baby. That's how Look Who's Talking was made. 
the way we were told we were going to do baby talk was we were going to write scripts and the babies were going to perform them live in front of a studio audience every Friday night. <laughs> this did not go well. So that only lasted a little while. By the way, the John Travolta character in that sitcom in 1990 was a young actor named George Clooney. Wow. Yeah. That's not about that. That's crazy. When we see each other now, we hug and we say we survived. <laughs> that's well, where we started. That's great. Yeah. Now, I want to get up to Everyone Loves Raymond because we only have an hour. And oh, sorry. Oh, no. I'm talking too long about oh, no. Hey, are you, are, where, do you have plans in the next hour? What do you mean? After that? Yeah. After, after today at noon. Oh, at noon, I have to go to lunch. All right. Now, I was going to say we could do another hour because my guest canceled. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. Right. But I'll come back. Yeah, come back. But now, I want to I talk about Raymond because, because yeah. uh, first of all, the baby talks, it's just, it's it's so funny that people sit there and you go from different shows. And yes. Then the, and you so I had your, four or five years of that. And then, and now, then we finally got on Coach, which was a show that at least people had heard of. And it was a great show. We didn't think we were suited for that show. Yes, there was character comedy going on. We were very good and very good actors and, and really good uh, writers and Barry Kemp, wonderful. But I didn't know anything about sports. Neither did Oliver. And we, and we would write, that coach wouldn't know your football term here from his different football term here. We would write that. Hey, you people who know the football, you'll understand. You'll fill it in for us. Yes. Uh, and we were there for three years. The third year, uh, Oliver and I amicably, amicably split up because the deal in Hollywood is you're a very good bargain if you're a team. Right. And I recommend that when you're starting out because you want to get hired. And people like 2 for one Yes, they don't pay you as two individuals. They pay you as one person that you split. But listen, Hollywood money is so much better than any other kind of money that you're happy to get it. So we do that. And then the third, you know, after doing it for five years, you start to realize we are two people. Now, what was it like when you separated? Because I'm sure you guys played on each other's strengths. I don't know yeah. if there was a dialogue guy yeah. or a movie guy. But so when you separate, and of course you want to make more money. After five years, it was easy to okay. separate because we were two people in the room. In the writer's room. Okay. We wouldn't, you don't huddle and say, uh, 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 we say green, right? We, we're two people with different opinions and different things, and we wrote together well, but you can, once you're on staff, you can write with anybody. Like you and I could team up on a script and write a script together. We're going to split the script fee, but not script our writer's salary. Right. Okay. So we're going for that. We're going to, to, to really, uh, also, after five years, you start understanding that you have something individual to say. So it's just like anybody else who splits from their partner. But this was amicable. And uh, Oliver's a wonderful writer in his own right. He runs the show uh, Pretty Little Liars now. Okay. Yeah. And so that very year, where it's my first solo year, I get a tape of a comedian. And this happens in Hollywood where... They, comedians are looking for showrunners, people to create shows for them, and writers are looking for talent to create shows for. So this comedian had been on David Letterman one time after trying to get on there for 12 years. And from that one six-minute appearance, Letterman said there should be a show for that guy. And they set about looking for someone to create a show for this Ray Romano fellow. And I got lucky. Now, had you you had you seen Ray's act on Letterman or anything? Before? I actually saw it. I saw it the night he was on because I never missed Letterman. I love Letterman. I miss I miss Letterman now. Me too. I sit there. I go. I me remember too. going back to college watching yes. it, and me and my girlfriend were saying, even like Christmas time, you know, Darlene Love not singing, you know, yeah, the thing. It's just it's it's hard to. I don't really watch late night TV. I watch Kimmel occasionally, but I, yeah. I now I used to try to stay up, but now I'm like, yeah. if I fall asleep, it's not Letterman. So, so I I went to New York to interview with Letterman after Ray and I hit it off. I had to go there, and I had a meeting with him. That was strange. And then uh, I hadn't, I didn't see him ever again in person. Really? I spoke to him a grand total after that 20-minute kind of interview, which I didn't even realize was the interview for the job. I thought it was just they treated me like I had the job already. And it was a very strange thing where heavy metal music was playing in his office the whole time, like blasting. And I had to talk like this to get to, for the. I didn't understand. He also had me sit at his desk, and he brought in the two other producers from from Letterman show. And and I I was sitting behind Letterman's desk, and Letterman was it was after the show. He's in his sweat, smoking a cigar, leaning up against the stereo, with this heavy metal music blast. And nobody turned it down. Nobody offered to take my coat, and I'm sitting at his desk, which he. 
I said, you don't want me to sit here? He goes, absolutely. I said, well, the first thing I'd like to do is throw you all the hell out of my office. But they were they were, they were were nice. I didn't realize till after, my agent called and said, congratulations. They like you. You get the job. I said, oh, okay. That was the interview. Okay. I, um, I swear to God, we were on for nine years. I didn't speak to him a grand total of five minutes more. Wow. I think after the first year we got picked up, he called me. He said, uh, congratulations. What are you picked up for like three or four more seasons now? I said, no, they just do it one, <laughs> one year at a time, Dave. I don't know about you. But here they just, you know. we So the flash forward now to Letterman's going off the air last year, right? Ray did one of his final weeks, and he thanked Letterman for, you know, everything. And I thought, I should call this guy, too, because he made my life good, too. So I'll leave a message for him. And I call. And I leave a message for him. And do you know he called me back that week, the biggest week of his life? He found time to call me. And we talked for about 15 minutes. It was thrilling. Oh, it'd be amazing. It was fantastic. And he was really relaxed and great and really complimentary and sweet and and wonderful. and, And I couldn't believe this, you know, that week that he went off the air. Letterman, I'm talking about. His show was a gigantic week for this man. How he had time to call me. But, you know, I think he he really liked the show. Just, and it, it was the, I think it was the only show outside of his own that he produced that went somewhere. Right. So it was special to him. And he, I think he was proud of it. And yeah. so I'm proud of that. Well, yeah, that's awesome. And, also, and he did find Ray. You know, it's like, you know, exactly. and that's the thing. And it's his taste. Yeah. And he said, this is what I like. And then yes. you you guys executed it. Yes. And that's what's important. Yes. Now, were you nervous yeah. creating a show like, yeah. for the first time? Because, yeah. I mean, where do you start? Do you sit there and go, we have Ray's act. Right. And Great now, question. are you working with Ray? Or how does it formulate? Great question. So you're sitting with Ray. Never met him before. I like his material. I like that he's talking about his his kids, his family. It reminds me of, and I know that this is not cool to say at this moment, Bill Cosby's act, you know, which I grew up on. Yeah, we all did. We all watched We that. all did. Buck, buck, and all that stuff. We all remember those. Bits. And uh, it's one of the great tragedies that I can't even talk about because uh, it's too upsetting that this is now taken away from us. You know, this this the, the legacy now is not that. Right. And the legacy, if things were right, would be that. And it's not just me. It was Raymond, too. So we connected on that kind of aesthetic, values. You know, it wasn't raunchy the way lots of comedians are. It wasn't sex-driven. It was it was uh, the stuff of life. Your wife, your kids, your parents, right? Being a kid yourself. being a So even at a very early age, at eight, nine years old, I'm listening to Russell, my brother, whom I slept with, you know, and and Ray knows it by heart as well. So we're laughing about that on the first meeting. Other than that, I would say to you, tell me about yourself. What's your family like? And Ray says, well, I got twin boys, an older daughter. My family lives close by. They're always bothering me. Uh, I have an older brother who's a police sergeant, and uh, he touches every bite of food to his chin before he eats it. And uh, he saw an award that I won for comedy and he goes oh, it never ends for Raymond everybody loves Raymond right and I said well it doesn't seem like there's anything there we can use so what I mean <laughs> no, I thought that seems like a show it does and he right? goes what do you mean I said that seems like a good starting place he goes what do you mean he's like he didn't get that his life was worth anything okay like most of us and I said listen we don't have any other ideas so this is a good starting place. We may change it as we go, but I'd like to start there. And what I don't know about your family, I'm going to fill in with the personality of my family. He goes, you can do that? I said, I have to do that. I don't know any other way to do it. He goes, well, does there have to be a like a story every week? I see these sitcoms and their stories, and I, I would just like to do a show where we sit in the diner and just talk about stuff. I'm like, well, first of all, there is that show already at, in 1996. It's called Seinfeld. And second of all, I'm not the right guy for that. I don't know how to write that show. You know, they do it brilliantly on that show. I, I'm not that guy. I like the family stuff, the stuff we're talking about, the Bill Cosby stuff, this stuff. So he goes, all right, I guess. And I go off and I, I write a pilot. And I write a very simple story, which took me a while to land on. That, that What is that pilot story? 
I could have a premise pilot, which they don't want, which is Ray has to spend more time at home, that kind of thing. CBS doesn't want that. They want a typical episode to show that the show will have legs. Okay. They want episode 12 or 30 or 40. They don't want episode one. They don't want the premise pilot. Some some shows, it's 100% necessary to do the premise pilot because otherwise no one will know how you got here. But for us, it wasn't such a big premise. In fact, we almost didn't get on because it was so simple. Guy and his family live across the street from his parents. Nobody's jumping up and down. Wow, that's so sexy. We have to right. get that show. <laughs> so the only thing we had was execution, right? The only thing that was going to make us stand out when people would ask us, so how's this going to, what's the hook? I said, the hook is we're going to be half decent. That's the hook. Nobody was saying, we were, we were the last show picked up. Were you? Okay. Oh, yeah, they had shows with big stars. It was Les Moonves' first programming year as president of CBS. And to his credit, he liked this show, and he picked it up. Now, he had to give the shows with the big stars the great time slots. So we got Fridays at 8.30 after Dave's World. There hadn't been a hit in that time slot since Gomer Pie. Wow. Yeah, we didn't change that. <laughs> but the three people who watched liked it. The reviews were nice. And when he had some trouble on Monday night on one of his shows, he patched us in there. He said, I'm going to give you six in this time slot after a good show. We'll see how you do. But if you don't perform there, I can't help you anymore. This okay. was in the spring of the first season. And our ratings went up. They doubled from Friday. So you'd think, oh, we're, we can relax now. Nope. We were nervous because now we had been sampled and we could only go down from here. Right. But the week after that, our ratings, our ratings went up from there. That's when we knew we were okay. In fact, Variety even printed. Looks like they found a permanent spot on Monday night. Oh, now we could relax. Right? That must be great because, you know, that's the one thing you hear. A lot of these shows, they die because the network juggles them around. And, yes. And then people, you know, as a, as a viewer... And mm -hmm. it's not the show's fault, mm -hmm. but you sort of get pissed because you're sitting there going, yes. okay, the DVR, yes. and then you sit there, now, way, but this now is this is before, before DVR, DVR so now DVR, but then you sit there and go, and I couldn't deal with it. When I did stand up, I would tape Seinfeld, but I couldn't figure yeah, out the yeah. VCR. But you sit there and you go, okay, man, you know what? I have a night off, I have this, I'm going to watch the show, and you yeah. go on, and it's not on, and you go, what the hell? And it wasn't like the computer was so big that you yeah. could sit there and go, okay, everybody was running time slot no you know? so it was it was it was crazy and i think for a writer for a creator that must be when they at least the juggle they gave you was a good move you know it's not Absolutely. like then they kept moving you because then you can never find a following they moved us out of necessity and confidence in the show so you get done that first season now how long till you know you have a second season going very soon after that okay because it was already spring and we only have a certain number of episodes that would take us to april right or may i think it's when you're finished and we knew by the time we were wrapping in May that we were coming back. Now, how, and that's me feel great because it's your first show you created. Yes. And, you know, which is certain to get to that level, which is great. And you'd work with some other support coach. You'd work with some shows who weren't, you know, what you really wanted to do. You learn just as much of what not to do, right? And just as much from those shows. Uh, even something like this on, on one show I worked on was, was pretty popular. We got a memo. Uh, we noticed uh, some of you are putting milk on your cereal in the morning. And I'm like, what? And, and the memo continues. The cereal is for snacking. The milk is for coffee. We do not buy you breakfast. Do not put milk on your cereal. And I remember thinking, wow, all that did was make everyone go, what petty jerks you are. Why would you do that? And I thought, if I'm ever, I remember making a mental note, if I'm ever lucky enough to have my own show, we're going to have milk on our cereal. Because <laughs> why? Because people like it. And you want people to be happy at work. So I had the best craft service in town. Okay, so now, well, like, Legendary. What, what, like, what was some of your stuff in the craft service? Uh, deli from New York, uh, cinnamon rolls from Ann Sather's in Chicago, once a year uh, for the writers and the and the office staff, uh, crab claws from Joe Stone Crabs in Florida. <laughs> uh, really good food that would bring you together as a family, which is all I cared about. We're doing a show about families, for families, and I wanted to be a family. That's all I cared about, was making these personal connections and it worked. 
I'm not saying the food was the only thing, but it sure is a great, easy way to bring people together. And I found that my entire life, and now it's manifested in this show I'm doing now. Yeah, I want to, well, I, well, I want to talk about sure. that show because I just That's fine. I, there's so much to talk to you about. I mean, <laughs> you're gonna have to come back because I want to talk about how you, the exporting or all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I love the show, Rima, but now the show I just now the show you're in right now. Yes, is called I'll Have What Phil's Having, and it's on Netflix. Right now, it's on Netflix. It, it was a PBS original show. I did six episodes. They gave me six to go anywhere I wanted. It was great. It, by the way, it took ten years from idea to fruition, right, to have this. So I don't want people to think I can just walk into a place and say I want to do a food show when it happens. I mean, ten years of really working at it. Why? Uh, did, why did it take so long? Uh, I think because it's too good to be true. <laughs> That's what I think. I think it's just like, why you, why this, you know, there's Anthony Bourdain already exists. Nobody needs you, right? right? So I had to, through trial and error, find myself and find what I had to offer to the genre. And so I think I did. I have a way in. I have a point of view. I have uh, something I'd like to say that's different from Bourdain. Now, he's a, he's a superhero. My line about this is, uh, you know, I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. Right. <laughs> I always watch him too. I'm like, I couldn't jump off that cliff. Of course I'm, not. I'm like, no. I'm way. not getting the the chest <laughs> tattoo from drunken Borneo tribesmen. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so now you're doing this show. Now how do you sit there? I mean, you think about food, and you have to pick six places. Mm-hmm. Now how do you? Pretty easy. What, what, what was your process and what six did you pick? Easy. Uh, first, I had to have, what is the show about? Well, the, what is the motivation? I want to convince you to get off the couch and travel. Okay, Two-thirds of Americans don't have a passport, right? Most people don't leave their town. Most people, even in their town, don't try something new. Right. They go to the same thing all the time. That's just how people are. I'm trying to motivate you to understand that travel is the best thing you can do in life. Right? And people think, my own family included, that these kind of experiences are transitory. They don't last. They think we should save up. My, my family was like, we need to save our money for an operation. They right. would never think to spend money on a meal, on, on a, like a great experience. This happened very rarely in my family, mainly because we didn't have a lot of money. And so I understand that, that most people don't have a lot of money. And most people can't afford to travel. But my point is that you can even travel in your own town. You can try cuisine that you never had before and expand your mind, expand your life, make your life better, actually. This was my motivation. So if I'm trying to get you off the couch to come and travel, I want to entice you with the world's greatest hits. So we started with Paris, Florence, Barcelona, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and what I think is the best food city in America, Los Angeles. Okay. Right? And it seemed to work. People seemed to like the show. And it's, it's, I guess, very positive and, and loving and romantic even. You know, the, the, the cities I'm showing you, the best of the stuff because I want to entice you to do this, to make your life better. I actually think the world would be a better place if we all experienced a little bit of someone else's experience. So this is what I've learned in my years on Earth as being my values. And what I think it's worth living for. Me. It's personal. It's a personal point of view. So for me, it's family, friends, food, travel, and laughs. So this show incorporates all the things I love in life. Not just in the business, which is writing, acting, directing, right? Right. I say acting, but I'm not really acting. But I am performing in a way. I'm the host of this thing. So it combines everything I love. And my values, my personal values. So I'm doing what I love. And it took a long time to get there. But Raymond was such a great place to live for nine years because those values got instilled by doing that. You know, if you create a show and then you get to be the showrunner, you're the boss. Now, I'm not a boss by nature. I had to become a boss. So you have to think. When you're starting that job, how are you going to be? So the first rule, I thought, was having learned from five years of working on shows, 
where things weren't so great all the time, and you learn just as much from the bad as the good, I think I'll be nice. That's actually a choice. Right. Because I worked on shows where the people weren't nice all the time. And and they let the pressures of their job and losing that job get to them, and it affected how they were with other people. You see it all the time. I'm sure people listening to this are at a job right now <laughs> where they're going, that's my boss. You do see it a lot. And I think I always sit there, you know, and I don't get irritated by it. I used to, but I sit there and go, you know what? This per- I feel bad for the person at times because it's exactly. Like, and when they're going, and home, I would be, f- I would feel even worse for that person if I wasn't feeling so bad for myself having right. to be with that person. Right, exactly. And you'd sit there and you think, God, that you know, that poor woman or guy is going to go home to a partner and put them through shit. You know, it's yeah. like it's like a thing. It it keeps. Or going. they're getting shit from the partner and right. they're taking it out on you. At exactly. Work. That could happen. So now, what were some of the stuff you did to make? A nice to guy be beside, nice. besides craft service on Raven. By the way, don't uh, that's like don't say besides because that's one of the main things you can do. Right after being nice and after establishing a kind of uh, uh, good work ethic, and and letting people understand that we want to do a good job, we'll stay as long as necessary. But I want you to go home too. I'd been on shows where we were working at three in the morning because. For whatever reason, the guy in charge usually didn't want to go home, right? Or didn't know what he wanted. So I thought I can make life better for everybody, including myself. And I'm having, you know, I'm as Raymond is starting, I'm actually starting a family, a real family at home. Okay. Having babies. We had two kids while the, the you know, I had a, one kid right before the show started and another kid in the first season of the show, right? So I think... If you're going to write about real life, you should have one. Right. So I wanted that for everyone. So I got very disciplined, something I'm naturally not. <laughs> like in, in school, all I, I think my number one job through school was, how do I avoid homework? Right. So it's ironic that my job now as a writer is homework. Right. <laughs> so I have to become very disciplined. I have to be a big boy. I have to grow up, you know, take responsibility. And do my job. And if I do my job well, it'll mean everyone else's job will be better too. And so we developed a system. And I swear to you, we were home for dinner every night. For two reasons. One, I wanted to be home. And two, that's where stories were coming from. If you worked for me, I'd say, Steve, go home. Get in a fight with your wife. Come back in and tell me about it. And we'll have a story. And 90% of the shows were something... That happened at home that was terrible that we turned into a show. See, that's great because that's uh, true. And it actually just incorporates the people more, you know, it's like anything. It incorporates the writers, even though they're involved, more into the real they're story invested. process. They're because, invested. Yeah, because it's there. They can sit there and go, oh, man, you know what? I can't believe this. I was trying to watch a football game. And then someone, that happened to me. And then it's like, hey, Phil. And then it takes off. So, you know, we're being, we're writing true to ourselves. We're writing stuff that we like. It's luck that it caught on with other people, that they related to it too. We, If you try to do that, if you try to write vaguely and try to hit everybody, you miss everybody. But if you write specifically, real stuff, stuff that happens, stuff that could happen, that was our only rule in the writer's room. Could this happen, right? Yes, we'd like it to be funny, but could it happen? A lot of shows, funny is the only rule, and once stuff starts appearing that you go well that wouldn't happen you're out right right you're not connected anymore we we feel that intrinsically not even able to articulate it all the time but something in the back of your head turns off and you look at your phone right you get distracted because it's not holding you why isn't it holding you because something in your head said that would never happen that's that's one of the reasons that's true that's when you do watch tv i do that a lot my girlfriend's like, you're you're out your phone. And I'm like, well, because yeah. I don't really like the show. I'm not watching. connecting. Right. It's either boring or it wouldn't happen. Right? So you're trying to avoid those two things. Now, I got to ask you about mm-hmm. your about the, the show, mm. the, the Netflix one. How did you pick your places in L.A.? Because there's so many good eating places you're in right. L.A. You're right. I didn't scratch the surface. How, I mean, the reason we're the best is because we have the most uh, diversity. More than New York, even, at this moment in time. The biggest Chinese population in the world outside of China is here in the San Gabriel Valley. 
biggest Korean population in the world outside of Korea, Koreatown, where I happen to live right next door. There's new restaurants opening every week. I can't even keep up. It's ridiculous how, how much. And we have the land, right? So it's spread over everywhere. So just like, you know, if, as a photographer, you take a lot of pictures, three are great. Well, we have so much that we have a lot of great. I mean, it's it's crazy how many ethnicities and cultures and cuisines are represented. It is true. I so remember- I picked by what floated to the surface for me. And I wanted mostly the way I eat, which is not expensive, not the four-hour, four-star meal, not the high-end stuff. I think L.A., I, I don't think I went to one high-end place. I, in the other cities, I, I look for at least one splurge right. per vacation because I think that's what people do. They look for the one or two, you know, we, we made it all the way to Paris. We got to eat at this place, right? So I think that's uh, relatable. But in L.A., for some reason, our strength, I think, is in our ethnic foods, which are generally not as expensive as the fancy French meal. That's true. You know, it's so funny because you're right. I remember I would go through Groupon, and I would see, hey, there's this Russian restaurant. I never heard in North Hollywood, but not in North Hollywood, like down like past Van Nuys. And it's in the middle of nowhere, and we go in, and we're the only two people there because it's afternoon. So we go for lunch. It's a Saturday. You think it's going to be busy. Yeah. And it was great. You know, you sit there and you go in and that's, you know, you find, that's the thing about, hey, you find these places. I used to do it through Groupon a lot. Yeah. Because there's a little place in Burbank called La Bamba. It's a little, you know, you're driving. It's in the middle of Glen Oaks. I live in Burbank. I'm like, why why is there a restaurant there? There's houses all around. And you go in, it's inexpensive. And the portions are giant. You go, wow, it's so good. And that's the What's more satisfying than that? Exactly. taking that little extra time and just trying it, even if you don't like it, the journey is its own reward, right? The fact that you tried it, that you were a little bit of an adventurer. You know, you're mining for gold. Most of the time, gold miners didn't find gold. Right. But when they did, they were very happy. What were the restaurants you did in the Los Angeles episode? I did a food truck tour of East LA. That was fantastic. I I had a bite of food that was as good as anything I had anywhere in the world. From a truck that was uh, called Carnitas El Momo, which is a white truck you'd never stop at in 100 years because it just looks like a plain nothing thing, and maybe you'll get sick, you think. But I had an expert take me, Bill Esparza, and he said, this is where the probably the best Carnitas anywhere are here. What do you mean anywhere? In the world, he says. I'm like, holy shit, let's try. So we try it, and it's the most delicious thing, and it's juicy and crispy and... Th- just if you like pork, I mean, they, they, they call it uh, Apocalypse Now, this okay. taco. <laughs> and it's $2. That's just amazing. Come on! You gotta go. I, I tell everybody, you gotta go. And Gorilla Tacos, which is gourmet taco truck, right? Where they're a little more expensive. They're like 8 bucks for a taco. But it, this is this guy trained with Alain Ducasse in Monte Carlo, and he came back to the hood where he was from and wanted to make great tacos for his people. That's what's amazing about tacos out here. I remember leaving a Kings game or a Dodgers game. I think it was a Dodgers game. My buddy took a back road, and it was like a Friday night, mm-hmm. and uh, it's where near he grew up. Mm-hmm. And there's people like they just like like they're they're on a corner, mm-hmm. and they have like a grill, mm-hmm. and they're just making tacos. Yeah, and you just walk up, and they're like a buck. Yeah, and it's like you know, there's no health health code, there's no <laughs> A, and it's true. You you find these places, and you're like, who would have thought? And the same thing. We so many times we think we're gonna get sick. And we, by the way, look where people are getting sick. At the famous national chain, they're getting E. coli. I know. That's what's, that's the funny thing. I right? Always, I always say I don't... Not from the truck that that, that you I, suspect. I don't feel bad for them because if, if you go to Chipotle and you get Mexican food and you live in Southern California, you should be ashamed of yourself because you can get something for half the price at a little mom and pop store in, in Burbank or anywhere, any town, and it's going to be authentic and it's going to be cheaper. I'm trying to tell people, you know, I, I love... Roy Choi and what he's doing right now in Watts with a, a place called Local. He's bringing healthy fast food to the inner city to people who've never experienced it before. You know, there's a Burger King three blocks from this place, but everyone's lining up for this. Why? Because it's great and the prices are the same. Uh, and it's making this neighborhood. This is heroic to me. And I just, I love this so much and the food is fantastic. So if you guys... Take a trip down to Watts. There's nothing to be afraid of. Go during the day if you're a little nervous. 
but try this place. L O C L local. And it's, it's called. It's like fast food. It is like fast food. It but is it's fast food. But yes, he's using high quality ingredients, and I'm telling you. The people there are so friendly and nice. A lot of people who work there are from the neighborhood. Most of them are. Some of them had never been in a restaurant before. Some of them had never used a knife to cut vegetables before. They're doing it. The food is fantastic. I'm talking about like great burgers, great like barbecue turkey sandwiches and, and uh, veggie nuggets, chicken nuggets, but healthy delicious stuff see that's good and that's good and getting the word on stuff like that is always good because there are there's so many good places there's a place in north hollywood called uh i forget what it's called now it's a vegetarian place and it's everything is vegetarian yeah and they don't use a lot of salt because i have to wash right. my sodium and it's so good you get like their pizza and they make the, the dough with the wheat and something else and just mm-hmm. and you sit there it's lenore's it's been around forever uh-huh. and you go and even like it sounds weird you get a meatball sandwich but yeah. it's, it's but it's not vegetarian meat. yeah and it's so good, and it's been yeah. around forever, and all the stars used to go there, and it's a yeah. little dive. I always crack up because across the street, there's a shopping center that has a peep show place, a liquor store, and a laundromat. So I said, people- One-stop shopping. Yeah, exactly. I can go for all day. <laughs> now, we, we got to wrap up soon. Now, really? Are, are you on social media? Do you tweet a lot? or I'm a tweeter. Like, I'm, what, what? Uh, Phil Rosenthal is, the, is my handle. Straight Very up. Very inventive. No no and, lines um, underneath in or anything? Instagram, I'm phil.rosenthal. And I'm on the uh, Facebook as well. My daughter told me the rules of social media. She's 18, and I didn't know this. She told me. Twitter is for funny things. Instagram is for beautiful things. Facebook is for old people things. Okay. Now, now, what do you well, what do you put on your Instagram? Do you put pictures of your food and of stuff course. like that? Of course. What do I have to offer anybody? This is what all I have. No, it's like because the food, because Tom Caltabiano does a lot of those food pictures, and he always, you know. Well, Tom's a great photographer. Yeah, he actually. I'm took, taking pictures with my iPhone, like I think half the world does, or I, most of the world, and uh, people are, you know, they just want to know what's good. So I think I'm providing a public service. And we can find your show on Netflix, because actually I'm going to go yes. home. Netflix, and, all six episodes of the first season are on Netflix right now. And uh, a lot of more people are seeing it there than they did when it was on PBS this year. Because you can, you can, you can just see it anytime. That's the great thing. Like, yeah. like tonight, I'm going to watch the Los Angeles one. I, I love that you're going to watch. I'm going to go home because I love food, and Me I, too. you know, I had the cheesesteak king of Philadelphia, Tony, yeah. Luke, Tony Luke, when he was in town, yeah. on the show. And when I was in back in New Jersey, yeah, over Christmas, you went. He bought. He met me and my girlfriend for lunch and bought us lunch. And oh, I went. It was. I, it was so good. Anyway, I'll I'll talk to you later about that. <laughs> the thing was so good, but they they have this this uh his best sandwich is this roast pork with pecorino cheese and a broccoli rob and uh some oh it's so good. You're getting me excited. It, it was it, and he wanted to bring him out here, but not that he. It's just hard to open a restaurant in L.A. sometimes when you're franchising. So I just realized yeah. that I didn't eat breakfast. Well, see I that I just realized. I'm starving. Okay, well, we're going to get you out here so you can eat soon. <laughs> so, uh, so it's uh, Philip Dot Rosenthal. Phil or Philip? Phil Dot Rosenthal on Instagram, Phil Rosenthal on Twitter and Facebook. Right, well, I want to thank you for coming on. I love coming. It's funny. You got to come back because we need to talk more about Raymond and getting it across seas, which is uh, people you've heard Steve Scrovan talk about that. Anyway, so please follow him. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have. 475, I think, episodes up. 475, wow. so you can get that. And if you have a Google, uh, if you get the Android, go to the Google Play Store. There's a Cooper Talk app. It's free. All my episodes are there. You can listen to it on your phone or your tablet. You can also email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. I will get back to you. Tell me who you want to hear, stuff like that, because I always like to interact with people that listen, because you know this is what I love to do. And also, uh, what was I going to say? Um, Instagram, Cooper Talk One. I do a lot of food too. I do the healthy eating stuff, but you know, you know, I had a heart problem a few years ago. So, if you want to eat healthy, I do something called Cheap and Easy on my Facebook, and then also you can go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com. It's uh, my low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 recipes. They're all easy to make. It's basically cooking for one. So if you don't have a lot of ingredients, you know, recipe stuff in your house, there's not a lot of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. There's no cumin in these recipes. They're easy to make. There's no pictures because we get intimidated when we look at pictures. So go to StopTheSalt.com and buy that. You can get it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. But if you get it from me, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. And you can start eating healthy because we all got to get healthy. We're not getting any younger. So do me a favor. Do follow Phil.Rosenthal on Instagram. Follow him on Twitter at Phil Rosenthal. Follow me at Cooper Talk. 
website, coopertalk.net. Go to cafevalet.com. Enter the word Cooper. You get $5 off their starter combo. It's a great deal. So instead of $25, it's 20 And you get 10 cups of coffee out of that and the machine. So I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only a sip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week.